Hey, boss. I didn't know walleye fish had fingers. <laughs> You're going to hear more about that story here in a little bit. We want to close out 2021 with you in our inaugural season 20 of an inaugural season of a disaster podcaster with episode number 25. So this is a good New Year's Eve edition, and we'll see you in just a minute. Hey, thanks for joining us again. Again, Disaster Podcaster. Um, this is a podcast dedicated to restoration industry, disaster cleanup, and the professionals that do the work there. Welcome to episode number 25. This is going to be our final of season one, and this will air uh, on the recorded platforms in the next couple of days. But we are streaming live today in our disaster podcaster facebook group so if you watch this later on either youtube where we play the entire video portion or if you're listening to this on the podcast on spotify apple google any of the regular platforms that have your podcast wherever you listen to them all if you are listening to this and you want to watch the live you can but if you'd like to be joining the live stream so that you can ask questions in real time just go to Facebook and Disaster Podcaster. You'll see the the same image and logo over there and join in the fun. It's kind of cool. We also did an episode last week where we took live callers, and that was something that we might try to do more of next year. It was a good topic about billing your client. Um, first thing I do, as we talk about 2021, I can't do that without thanking those of you that have supported us in this venture of starting this podcast and video podcast as well, and the vlog. Um, season one, 25 episodes. Truth is, we probably made about 28. Just some of them didn't make the cut because we we aren't professional podcast engineers. We, we did our best. We YouTube and Googled, and we hired a consultant or a coach a little bit to help us to make sure. We want to make sure it was good, but it didn't always turn out well. We had some audio and video some issues like that. So um, we recorded more, but we felt like 25 were good. And they're all available on our website, Restoration Advisors. They're going to be in their Disaster Podcaster group, or again, look them up on your favorite channel. So, and on this journey, besides those of you that listen, and of course, I couldn't have done this without Toby Klim that works for us at Restoration Advisors for, for helping the engineering program, producing, keep me in check, telling me what's funny and what's not funny. So, I couldn't do this without thinking uh, all of those, but um, but also I want to make sure I thank our sponsor, uh, Kevin Dooley with Kahi Incorporated, um, really stepped up and helped with a um, you know a, a financial and contribution to help us produce put this together with the, some of the right gear, some of the right platforms to do so, and some of the uh, the other accessories and things like that. So thanks to Kevin for being a, a supporter and sponsor of not only this industry but our podcast uh kahi if you go to kahi.io it is an incredibly powerful asset and fleet management tool um as a matter of fact you know it's it's i just learned something new this week so they you can track your your fans dehumidifiers anything of value 
I know people that track their ladders. Ladders are not cheap, and if you have a lot of them and they disappear, it gets expensive. But um, So tracking your assets in your fleet. But also, I just found out this week they have cameras for the cabs of your trucks, forward and rear-facing. They have facial recognition, which will text you and alert you when your team might be distracted or maybe texting. And there's just some really cool things that I saw into that. Uh, one of my clients actually called and said, hey, you know, Clark, I, I heard the podcast with Kevin and – I was looking at their website and they have the camera set up. I'm already paying that through and for that through another vendor, but I like the asset tracking of all my other fans, dehumidifier scrubbers. I like to have all of it in, in one system. I said, I don't blame you. Plus Kahi is integrating with a lot of the <clears throat> real, real powerful, important CRMs and, and project manager software. So really some good stuff there. So check out Kahi at, and get a, on there list or their appointment for a demonstration but thanks to all of them and i just wanted to tell everyone merry christmas this is being recorded on december 31st the new year's eve of 2021 so i'm heading tomorrow into the day of new year's and then right back at it next week um we're also closing out 2021 in our business it's like you are you know this is the weird week between christmas and new year's where i don't know Business is slower, homeowners aren't making claims, adjusters aren't responding and talking to anyone, payments aren't coming in. I know a lot of clients were having some cash flow um, struggles this time of year. But you know what? The more you're in this business, the more you start preparing for that. I would say first week of December, start looking at your your receivables to start getting bigger and, and thicker. It's just it's just how it goes. So get ready for that in August and start building up and slow down your spending and save your fuel. So but we looked at this year, looked at what we did, what we did new, what was successful, what wasn't. This podcast was one of them. This podcast, um, I didn't think it was going to be, but it's been very successful. And I mean successful by brand awareness and giving us a platform to talk about more things and help people with some some value and uh, showing things like that. But um, also, you know, we're doing blogging. We did some courses. We did a, a course on Xactimate about the Xactimate pricing. So check that out on our website. But again, season one's over. Season two starts next year. We're just going to start asking ourselves the same questions we tell everybody. We're not going to repeat what we did. We're obviously going to keep doing what was uh, successful in some degree. But how do we continue to evolve and be what like Toby considers the purple cow? Um, you know, if everybody on this street is going down to the light and taking a right, I want to make sure that we're not even on that street. I'm going to be on a different road. Um, so we're going to continue to evolve. There are a lot of podcasts out there, a lot of good ones. I mean, there's some really good friends that have good podcasts, all delivering slightly different content, um, maybe even appealing to a slightly different audience. And, and there's space for all of us. But I want to make sure that we stay in our lane, deliver some value, entertainment, and uh, you know, hopefully have some create some new conversations and make some change in this industry because – that's what I'm all about. Um, let me pause here. We're doing live streaming. Any comments, any questions so far, Toby? Yeah, Robert Moray checked in and Mike Hogan. Mike and Robert, both good guys. Good, good, good. Happy New Year's, guys. All right. So I want to segue into our topic today. Um, I did a poll in a group, probably this one and probably another one that we own um, for Restoration Advisors, asking, you know, we, we do a podcast and – what do you 
like to hear on your podcast. Um, I know Toby likes to listen to Murder Mystery, I, b- I believe it is, a Murder Mystery podcast. I've never listened to a podcast. I, I don't really – maybe someone played me a clip of it. I've obviously caught some Joe Rogan clips on YouTube and stuff like that, but it's just – it's not usually where I consume. But I, I'm interested to know what, what causes people – to say that's worth me spending some, it adds value to me. So is it, and, and the questions were, is it interviewing other people, industry icons? Is it education? Is it business solutions problems? Obviously the answer was one of the, uh, I left it open so that anybody could add their own. And one of them was, how about a combination of all three? So 20, 30 people voted. We'd like you to have business solutions wrapped with the story and maybe an interview. <laughs> so uh, leave it to us, Restorers is wanting everything. Well, so today what I wanted to do was um, do something I don't do a lot of uh, because I just don't really want it to be, to come across as uh, braggadocious and uh, about me and ego-driven, but I wanted to talk about a really big, complex project that I ran because I know that uh, those like me and other restoration nerds and geeks in the industry like to hear about details on big complex projects. Um, and again, I'm telling everyone these things not to say, Hey, Hey, check out what I've done. It's just that if you're in this field and you're driving forward and you're building your business, it might come a day where this is going to be you, you're going to come across these jobs and, you know, just having some perspective and excuse me, and having some, some, uh, reference to some of this stuff. And, um, you know, things happen in this industry every day that you guys and I don't even know. I mean, there is some, I've done some really large projects that have nothing to do with a fire or a flood or a, uh, a, a anything else. I mean, there's just some really – I've cleaned out humongous bodies of water with dead fish. Okay, we've just helped recover the dead fish. It was an, a, an a ecological hazardous situation. We had to get the dead fish out of this water, and, and it was uh, tens of thousands of fish. Dumpsters, dumpsters, dumpsters. It's not really what I thought I would ever do, but it was a need. It's what the customer needed, and we did it. So I want to segue into, um, as I was thinking about a really interesting, complex project that I could actually talk about. So some of the jobs that I've been on, I just can't divulge enough details to make it interesting. And, and that's sometimes because of you know, there have been obviously some that were classified um, governmental jobs or something like that. But some of them worked for companies um, they just don't they I don't have permission to 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 put their information out there and what happened. Some of them just don't want to know that they've had these kind of occurrence at their company for the public to know, you know. So it's like branding issues. So I'm I'm really cautious on what I put out, but this one was this one is on national news and it was well advertised. So I think what I'm gonna talk about what we did um isn't breaching any kind of privacy or um disclosure issues. So um, let's get right into it. Toby, any questions? We're all good. All right. All right. Let's go back and rewind the clocks for a minute to, um, I'm going to be looking at some notes here. So November of 2011, there is a city that's north, it's slightly north, northeast of Minnesota, or Minneapolis and St. Paul. It's called Becker, Minnesota, probably 75 miles outside of uh, of Minneapolis, St. Paul, which are the big the big hub of, of Minnesota. Um, there is a power company that serves that entire region of the country. It's called Excel. And Excel 
you know, they provide power for Minnesota, uh, probably all the neighboring states, South North Dakota, maybe maybe Montana, some others that are connected, Wisconsin. Um, nonetheless, big big company provide a lot, and it's, a lot of it's coal, and a lot of there's actually some nuclear and things like that. Well, they had this one plant that had an explosion, so. I was a project director for the company that we did this large company that I worked for. And we had a relationship with a, an insurance broker. So claims this big, big customers with that big, first off, they're self-insured to a pretty high dollar amount. Um, but their insurance gets involved in case it exceeds that number. So it's not uncommon for a big fortune 500 company to have an out of pocket of expense of 20 million before insurance kicks in. It just keeps their premiums low they self-fund their their claims. Um, so we had a broker that called us. Uh, he was a friend of our company. We had done a lot of work with him, and he just knew that we could handle a job of this complexity and mobilize. And we had a we had an office and a branch out of Chicago, and that was our nearest office. So um, I got the call from my corporate office and said, "Hey, you know, we've got a large issue here." We're going to mobilize you out to fly into Minneapolis and go up and take a look. So obviously, uh, you know, there's a couple of days. The way these work is it's not, you don't move the army immediately on some things like this. This was, um, let's take a moment. This was pretty complex, a lot of moving parts. So I flew in to start taking a look at it, meeting the client, looking at the scope of what needed to go on. But we knew we were going to be drawing from our Chicago office. And it was really interesting. That Chicago office was pretty barren and depleted um as a matter of fact when i first flew up we did not have any response vehicles out of chicago so we were already looking for i'm not sure where the next closest it might have been colorado um next closest office to start pulling resources from but because of the time and how it worked out some other people finished up a project we had some assets and resources come in to uh uh you know come back in so I flew in, met with all the parties. Uh, our health and safety officer met me up there. Um, and unfortunately, he's not alive anymore. I found out this past year that uh, that gentleman um, is no longer with us. And he was not an old guy. He was a younger guy. But uh, sad to say, I just thought of that as I was telling this story. So I flew in and met with the plant. So it's the Excel power plant. And this happened, you know, they had multiple multiple buildings, multiple different plants, but this one building called Sherco 3, don't know what Sherco was, it's Sherco 3 was the one, and these was these were, excuse me, um, these really big turbines, okay? So they have these big turbines that create, uh, create power through coal and burning, and, and, you know, just like turbines do. I think we have an image of that if we haven't already put it up there. This is it. Uh, after the fire, it's already being disassembled. Now that was not in our scope. This was a very. This was owned by GE. Um, this was a very technical piece right here. The fire, but this plant had been shut down for a couple of months before. They shut down some of these big plants. If you were in the industrial space, you know they have shutdowns for cleanup, for tune-ups, for change of fluids, switch out. You know the the engineers and things like that. So this has been shut down. Trying to fire it back up in November. And it exploded. And what happened was besides the fire and the soot and the char, um, almost every joint and union and pipe in there um, rattled and expanded and shook from the concussion. And just an insane amount of hydraulic fluid 
oil and other coolant and other chemicals just coated the inside of this plant. So this plant was approximately 400,000 square feet. Um, the building itself was, if I remember, we were right around 175 feet up. I mean, we're talking five, six stories tall, just a massive building. So right around the turbine, the damage was uh, obviously, you know, from the fire. So there wasn't there wasn't really any material. There wasn't plastic. So when you think of fire, what burned and what's the fallout look like? So this was electrical. Uh, it wasn't wasn't believe it or not a terrible amount of soot and, and char so there was going to be some cleanup of that again 175 feet up i'll talk about that in a minute but the bigger cleanup was all the other services that were now coated with slippery slippery oily grimy um uh, fault fluids and from a safety standpoint that had to be had to be cleaned up so so go up there and i spend a couple of days walking it um the building was set up with you know obviously you have there were two turbines but only one of them exploded uh the other one they planned on trying to get started up um the one turbine that exploded was on the north side and so right above it you've got just an empty cavern building with straight up to the ceilings like i said 175 feet um you have cranes going across bridge cranes that are mounted to the structure of the building we ended up having to build um, scaffolding on top of these cranes uh, up in the air to clean the structure above. Okay, so and then the other parts of the building were were all levels of mechanical and uh, just electrical and you know just other components. But we had probably five floors of mezzanines and, and layers, and uh, some of those were solid floors with concrete, and some were wire or you know metal mezzanine floor, which were oily. But we had concrete walls we had ceilings we had pipes and chases and control panels and all kinds of things were just covered with this oil so we looked around and we developed a scope with the, some engineers with our team and with the plant uh, safety officers and discovered that dry splashing was going to be primarily the best and most economical and efficient um, system to use to clean this up so i've cleaned with dry splashing a few times but nothing nothing near this scale um i'd like to go ahead and point out that as we're doing this we're learning a little bit more about what's going on here this turbine is is shut down and the expectation is they're supposed to be providing power for several hundred thousand people in that area all the way up to duluth minnesota over to fargo north dakota i mean it's this was a serious impact so what that meant was that excel had to reallocate power from some of its other plants. And even in some cases, because it was more economical, they had to buy power from other sources, other power grids at retail. So we're looking at a lot of expense here. And obviously, schedule and time was incredible. I mean, they had a lot of – I mean, our, our, our crew meetings, our staff meetings, and you know, client stakeholder meetings would sometimes have 20 to 30 different subs – doing different things uh, we had a lot of a lot of management around schedules and whatnot um so some of the details on the cleaning this thing so we go and we got you know obviously guys you go in and you've got to put an roem a rom on a, a job or a rough order of magnitude you got to start really coming up with the scope how you're going to clean it and how quick that's going to be and how many people it's going to take to meet how long till they need it back open you kind of back into it that way and then what can you get to 
there's obviously other people working, some things we don't have access to. We weren't touching the turbine itself. They were actually going to disassemble that, move it out, and then rebuild it off-site somewhere and bring it back. I actually think it went to Norfolk, Virginia to get worked on on a, on a, on a flatbed trailer. Funny enough, it had gotten so hot in the explosion, it melded all the metal pieces together, so it became one hunk of metal. So we worked into this, and we started putting together numbers for our, our efforts in this equipment. That's, um, you know, the personnel, the labor, the staffing, the equipment that we're going to need to access some of these areas. Um, you know, per diem, trips back and forth, you know, just consumables, office trailer, all this kind of stuff. So, you you know, you're just really going through, what am I going to need on this job? What's it going to cost? What are our published rates? So I worked on that offsite. Once we got an agreed upon scope, I just went and sat and started working on what's this going to cost? What's the what we used to consider not to exceed, but it's the ROM or it's the reserve. And I kept coming up with a really big number. I was, uh, I'd done some big jobs before, but it just, Oh, by the way, this was going to be a union job or partially union. We had to use union people. So that obviously really, really exaggerates the number. And that's something I haven't done a lot of some, but not a lot at that point. Um, but we're going to be using union and that adds a lot. That's a multiplier on top of the labor burden. Um, but I went back and I kept working on the number and, and I was coming up with around between four and a half to $5 million. And I was like, ah, this is a lot of money. And, you know, there's a little part of you. So it's what it's going to cost, what it's going to cost, blah, blah, blah. But she's like, I don't want to lose this thing. Cause I don't want them to call in somebody else. So we go to sit with our binder and, and the presentation to pitch it to the engineers. Cause it, this guy was like a PhD engineer of this place, you know, a mechanical engineer. And he was in charge, and um, we sat with the carrier who pretty much said, and you'll hear it in a second, but we sat down and we said, okay, it's going to be, you know, here's what it is. Boom, drop the number down, look at it, said, okay, let's go. And I'm like, oh, man, I left some money on the table. And then later I asked the, the broker who I had a good relationship with, I said, that was kind of quick. He goes, he goes, dude, what you don't realize, this claim between damages and business interruption, which includes them buying power retail, the, the gap between what they can sell it for and what they're making. This is a $400, $500 million claim. Here's this kind of a little piece of it. And I'm like, wow, thanks for making me feel great. Um, but it was. it was. Just, we were just a small part of it. Important, but um, I felt like it was a good number, and it ended up being. We did good with margins. But uh, um, so we were going to dry ice blast this thing. Um, I don't, you know, I want to watch the time here. Uh, dry ice blasting was going to be probably 70% of this. I've got some numbers here. 70% of the building was going to be touched with dry. Some just couldn't be. We had, we had again, we had a panels, electrical panels, uh, different kinds of surfaces that could not be blasted with dry ice. But the concrete, the mezzanine, the pipes, and stuff like that could. Um, interestingly enough, if, if you've never worked with uh, dry ice blasting, um, it depletes the oxygen at a really rapid pace. So there's actually a safety concern when you're in a confined space or a really tight space. When I say confined, there is a technical term of confined space, and then there are areas that are just confined. So nothing I needed to permit for, but uh, we were wearing pappers because we needed to make sure we replenished. We had sensors on the O2 level in the area, so we actually wore pappers, which are the uh, supplied air mask, uh, only for, not only for protection, but for also making sure that we kept enough. And it was really, really cold. So we, you know, your, your oxygen, it takes more oxygen, uh, you know, when it's colder outside. So we had these levels. Um, we had 
between purchase and lease, we had to get some of these large-scale dry ice blasting units, and they require com- big compressors and generators. Um, we released a few, and we bought a few, just said, you know, this is something we'll use more and more often, and we, this job was big enough. It was probably going to take us a couple of months. Um, some of them were big units that had two-gun outlets on it. Some of them had four and six-gun. They were some big units so that we could split people up and put people on different levels and, and just, again, we weren't working around the clock because of the burn on the union labor after hours and double time was incredibly expensive and it didn't need to happen as long as we were productive. But we had between 75 at some points and about 140 people working um, for about two months up there. But what's really interesting is, um, you know, obviously we did some tests on different surfaces where, you know, before you do that, before you, you test, you know, and, and experiences some of it, some of your guess guessing, but some mater- some surfaces were going to take more blasting and some less, depending on what their makeup was. But um, dry ice blasting, you obviously have to buy the media, what they call the media, which are the dry ice pellets. Well, if I remind you, we were in November in Minnesota. So uh, we were able to purchase the media, have it delivered, and store it outside because it was in the single digits for the whole time we were there just about. So storing it wasn't a problem and we were able to buy it in bulk in a, in a big, in a big truck and a tra- flatbed trailer actually, and left it out there. We had a forklift on site. So let me give you some numbers here. You order these big, large totes of dry, of dry pellets. And um, the good thing about dry ice, by the way, is once you use it and spray and it's exhausted, it, it dissipates and breaks up. There's, there's almost no cleanup, but what you do have left to clean up with the HEPAVAC is uh, the material that you blasted off the, you know, the, the, the leftover, you know, the, the, the media that's a source material that you've cleaned off of that doesn't just go away. So that's the cleanup, but not the media and that. So it really kind of made it a lot better, but uh, the totes um, were, they would hold about 1500 pounds, um, half a ton of of media so you'd fill these up they couldn't be completely full um but they'd be full at the time and i I don't have the invoices and everything in front of me i'm just kind of remembering back to it is about 250 to 60 per pound to buy the media okay um we ended up so that's about i got i have some notes here three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars thirty seven fifty per tote uh we ended up using around 110 totes of media that vendor that vendor loved us um doing the math that's about four hundred and fifteen thousand dollars just in media you had delivery cost we obviously had overspray you know you you lose some uh stuff like that we had the equipment but that's just for the product so um you know this job ended up we we went through and our number ended up being really 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 close to what we you know we said it was going to be um, I think we had a change order of two. We had a delay for uh, something. And, you know, when you have a delay and you have, you know, I mentioned we had about 75 to 150 people. So part of that is your labor that's local or maybe you came in. And then part of that's your your own company and corporate staff or your supervision and whatnot. So when you have a three- or four-day shutdown, they still have to be paid. They're still there away from home. It's not always economical to send everybody home and bring them back when they're from all over parts of the country. They're not all from Chicago, by the way. Um, so there were some down, a little bit of downtimes, and it caused some slight increases. Nothing that was major, but we made sure we documented that, and that's something I teach everybody. 
keep an eye on your burn rates and your increases so that you can document that. But, um, you know, it was a, it was a fun project. It was challenging. I really, what I loved was watching, um, some of the staff and some of the junior leaders that we had. We had some assistant project managers and supervisors at that point in 2011 with that company supervisors who, uh, the director of ops told me, said, you know, you've got some, um, I was a project director and he said, I really want to use this job as an opportunity to test out who's made up what and build some people up. And I, I want them helping with as much of the management as possible and seeing, you know, testing everybody and seeing, evaluate. So we had some supervisors that eventually became assistant project managers and then project managers and then project managers that became Probably now, I think, as a matter of fact, some of them are now directors of operations and one's a VP of something or another. So not even in production anymore. He's in sales. So um, it's really cool to watch people grow in those situations. That's why I talk about that doing so much. But I uh, I wasn't there all the time. It was about three months. So this started, by the time we got started and got approval, um, money up front, by the way, I always tell everybody, ask for a big chunk of money to get mobilization. We did. Um, by the time we got started, it was early December and this thing ran into in some level or not into February or March of the next year before our part was done so we could get out of their way. But, um, but I was there a lot of the time or especially the first few weeks. And then I would fly out and go look at other jobs and come back. And, and I was there one time. And again, my favorite thing about these jobs is always the stories. Um, I would fly in and I was always like, Oh, you know, boss man's coming in. He's going to take us all to eat. So I'd had the company credit card and, Becker, Minnesota is not a big town. They don't have an NFL team. I just wanted to put that out there. But um, I've got some friends that live in Minnesota. I don't want to upset anybody, but what they have a lot of in the winter are snowmobiles and bars. You always find a way to get your vehicle or your snowmobile to a bar. So we would eat at this bar and uh, grill. And they had you know bar food, and we were there. And one of our superintendents, big old boy, God, he was uh, – he was between what six two and six six, depending on how drunk I was, you know. And he was a big old boy, and uh, had the heart of gold. I think some of the crew called him cowboy, um, but not not the sharpest knife, you know. Just just simple. And we're at this restaurant, and I think they'd been going there a while, but maybe he's kind of the guy that saved his per diem. He made about forty bucks a day in per diem. And he would like to see how much of that he could keep and send back home and, and hoard that money. And he was Mr. Peanut Butter and Jelly. And uh, if you said, hey, we're going out to eat, he'll say, you paying? If you said no, he said, I'm good. I'm staying here. His room always had a whole lot of cereal and Cheerios. <laughs> but uh, we'd go to sit and eat. And I'm not saying his name because I, 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 I don't want it to make – we're not making fun of him. But uh, we're sitting there, and I look across the table, and I see him kind of perplexed looking at the menu. And, again – he wasn't dumb. He just was simple. And he's looking at the menu, and I said, what is it? He looked up, and he said, I didn't know walleye fish had fingers. <laughs> and we all cracked up laughing. So walleye is the big popular fish up there. I mean, they, they I guess they ice fish and get it everywhere, and, and it's delicious. But we'd eaten walleye all different ways, fried, broiled, blackened. But they had walleye fingers, which were just basically fish strips and fried. But uh he had not been eating there. He did not know that walleye had fingers. So we, uh, for years, we talked about you know, how those walleye fingers, and he's like, shake his head. So it was always, always fun. Um, it was really cool. You know, talking real quick about union labor, 
Um, there's a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions that people will say about union labor, and some of them are true, and some of them are not, just like anything else. But this is this is different. Um, I guess I would say Midwest, your union. These were some hardworking men and women, um, and they knew that building. And let me tell you, when this company had safety protocols, it was incredible how much safety there was and how much you had to know. Um, and all these, every, every break was at the, at the end of every break that you took, you had to have a safety meeting. But these, this, this teams that we used, and it was a mix of some of them, some of ours, um, became good friends. These were hardworking men and women, and um, it was really a good experience working with these with these great, great, great folks. And we learned a lot from them. And, and I think that's another thing that I love about this industry is you're not only the one teaching, but you're learning as you go. So a uh, couple of years, I mean, a couple of, I mean, a couple of months we spent in Becker, Minnesota. Um, I would have, I'd go up there and have a little bit of downtime and I got to know some people and um, I didn't go ice fishing. So one day Andy Michaels or Dean, you can teach me how to ice fish up there, but I drove up to Duluth, Minnesota and checked it out, but really good people. Um, just, you never know where that next call is going to be. We did not know anything about this plant. We just knew it was a big plant that had a fire. Your mind is racing. It could be anything. Your imagination is going crazy. Um, but you know, you just get there and you process it and you break it down into different components and it all comes to you and it's really simple. And, and, and I love that about this business. So, um, I love teaching people how to run complex and large losses because they're not always that much different than what you do when you have some systems around that. So um, at this point, are there any questions? I mean, I I don't know what else to tell you about the job, but if you've got some questions about running this thing, um, feel free to chime in. Do we have some viewers right now, Toby? Yeah, we got a couple of viewers still. I was just going to maybe say, mention that you should unpack the safety component of working at a nuclear facility a little bit. Um, yeah. The restoration industry, they love all the, the technical aspects of it and, I mean, I know nuclear is. Uh, I mean, the, the, I know I have friends in the nuclear world, and the the protocols are just incredible. Um, standard op standard operating procedures um, are are something that that they live by, but they've got to be super detailed. So, I, it might be interesting to some folks yeah. to uh, to unpack that a little. I will. Uh, so again, this one was not nuclear. This was coal burning. I've worked in nuclear and nuclear is another level for sure, for sure. But this one had the complexities were, believe it or not, cold. We were, people had to go out and, and there were some points where it was negative 10, negative 20. So, um, we had some people that were out. I mean, this is a lot of people working, going out and loading the, the hoppers for the driest blasting, going out and getting lifts. I mean, there's some safety precautions around that. Um, you had a lot of other parties working, other people working with big equipment. Um, you know, obviously you had hard hats at all times. I mean, I can't tell you how hard. And now working with union labor, they sleep with their hard hats on. So that wasn't a problem. But, man, our own staff, getting them to remind them, say, hey, where's your hard hat? That was every day. We had two-way radios for communications. Um, learning what some of the red alerts and, and um, some of the signaling was in the plant. They had some area-wide signaling for whenever there needed to be a, a safety briefing. Um, there was different sounds and different uh, bells and things like that that you had to learn. And again, in some of these cases, Toby, we were we were at a disadvantage. We were we were visitors on this thing, but we learned it pretty quickly. I'd say a week or two, the project manager that I assigned to that job, he became 
he he melted into that and he became close with all the other subs and um, it really made it easy to work around but you know every safety meetings all the time um, I teach safety in some of our large loss mastery classes and what I'll tell you is you've got to do your initial risk assessment but more importantly you've got to look for the changes because your environment's always changing you know you're you're on different surfaces now you're working with different teams your voltage on this floor is much different the temperatures here have changed uh, the people the capabilities of people working around has changed so um, just creating good documentation around how we did that. OSHA, by the way, they were on site all the time. I don't have to tell you that. I mean, they had a, they had their own office trailer there. And, um, again, they're there. Most of the time, your safety enforcement officers, whether they're hired or if they're OSHA, want to be in compliance mode, not enforcement mode. So they, they like to help people stay safe and stay alive. They're not there just to write tickets. That's usually only after um, adherence to the to their recommendations haven't been listened to, and this is repeat offenders and things like that. Um, we had one. We had one injury. Um, someone slipped and fell, and went down like half a flight of stairs, and 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 hurt themselves for to a point where they couldn't work for two or three days. And I think we reassigned them a superintendent or reassigned him to something else. And he, he ended up helping watch some of our supplies and, and manage that. But it was just a slippery situation. And we just always had to, you know, you couldn't be carrying a lot of things in your arms while you're walking around. We had a lot of guidelines and just compliance with those became babysitting and hurting cats. Cause this is just not something you face all the time, but that power plant had a lot to lose if they had subcontractors, which we were, that would breach safety protocols. But you know, nuclear is a whole other story. But this was a pretty intensive um, safety. And it's probably what's caused me to be so diligent about these things. And um, document binders full of that, you know, measuring temperatures and uh, assessments with people every day to make sure everybody's good and healthy and uh, recording when people miss work and making sure you know why and stuff like that. So, um I hope that answers your question a little bit. Cool. Any more questions or comments? Anybody in the field out there, anybody in the audience have anything to ask, feel free to uh, to go and do it. Um, these jobs don't come up all the time, but uh, they do come up, and it's never when you expect them to. Do you have something to say? No. Nope. All right. Well, we're about, we're about 40 minutes into it. That's usually where we keep most of our um, – podcast so listen i you know this was kind of one-sided I, I i love the the feedback so here in the next couple seconds if anybody has anything throw it in but um i'd like to tell you thanks for tuning in i want you to have a a really really great um new year's if you are listening to this i want to remind you some of the there were some verbal some uh, visual cues on screen if you don't know what those were you need to go to youtube and look at disaster podcaster look at restoration advisors and and you'll see episode 25 but um Guess we'll start to wrap it up and wish everybody. Uh, oh, hold on, we gotta. gotta yeah, um, Mike said a job like this teaches that we should be more aware of risk management, documentation, etc. And then Robert asked, "How many PMs did you have? Ta- uh, how many PM did you have talking documentation? Taking probably taking documentation. How many PMs did you have making documentation? Maybe is that what you meant, Robert? So." I had one primary PM on the job, and then he had two assistant, one or two PM assistant PMs. But we had strong superintendents, so everybody was responsible for documentation of 
what they did that day, how many square feet, what floor they worked on, how many people they managed, um, any uh, you know what safety topics they covered throughout the day, what what new risk awareness came up. Um, there was a lot of documentation that was required, and so you know that's that's what our job is as a company is. It's not something that we do on smaller water damage or small fires, but this job required another level. So I had one PM doing this, but we had a safety officer assigned full time, and our safety officer it actually ended up being a she because uh, the the he, she was a, you know a safety compliance officer. Our our corporate safety officer that I've mentioned passed away, couldn't stay on this job the whole time. He had to float around the country and look at other jobs, but um, he placed a compliance officer there and um, Rhonda super much super uh, documentation freak so she made sure everybody had it helped them would sit but she would not sit with you three times and show you the same thing she just would tell the pm that person's got to go and the safety officer's weight is pretty heavy in those places because that's not something you can you can't just brush it under a rug and forget about it so documentation on that but but the pm would accumulate you know it's always like robert it's like a funnel it's like an org chart the PM would not deal with all 175 people. He dealt with two or three, and those two or three would deal with five or six, and then five or six. You know, so it's it's tiers. You, no one manages that much. But documentation on what you did that day, again, what the temperatures were. It's a short day. It's a long day. Who didn't show up? Copious, copious notes so that anyone that wasn't there now or back then, either one, can open that up, take a look at it, and, and read the story. Mike uh, said thank you, um, but he's also wanted to know if we're doing anything in New York this year. Yeah, we're going to come bite the big apple. Uh, I think you're talking about getting gathering. I, I would say let's reach out to Bob and see what – I know Bob was, was ill recently, Mike. So Bob Timmel is uh, – what, what Mike's talking about is our association. For anybody listening, we have an association. As a matter of fact – the Alliance of Independent Restorers is a coalition and a collective of restoration contractors. We're trying to unite our industry to do more things like this, but but locally and regionally and nationally, get our voices together, work on industry standards, help fight some of the pressures that we have and change the perception of what our, the value of our industry is. We are not just rug suckers. We are literally a niche market contractor. So, uh, Mike, I don't have anything yet right up, but I, I'd say let's reach out to Bob. And he told me he was he was ill. Actually, he and his whole company were. He shut down for a week or two. But uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it sooner than later. That's it. Okay. Yep. Uh, on the screen, airrestore.org. Join. We have chapters all over the country. We have people in Minnesota, but not Becker. Um, listen, at the closeout, I've got to pay the rent. I've got to go ahead and tell you that we've been working on some really great courses, really some great things. Uh, we've got an e-course that we've got that's going to be launched next month. Some people have already jumped on it. If you want to, go check it out. Get rid of that Get rid of that money before taxes, before the end of the year. Um, but it's going to be 45 days to build a strong restoration company. Um, what does that mean? It means if you're just starting or if you're just about to open a restoration company, you want to in the future – or you've been open one or two years, or maybe you've been open 10 plus and you just say, you know what, I want a refresher. We have gone from the very beginning of planning a business and what it means and why you've opened it to all the things. What my idea was is to create a course that people, like I said, just starting or been in this for years, 
we've all learned something. Let's quit repeating that over and over, and, and let's get rid of a lot of the things that cost money, that cost time, that cause you headaches, and takes us just for. There's things that we know that we just learned as we went. It's our duty to teach future generations of that. And so that's what this course is. And it's a 45 days delivered daily, one lesson. They're not real long. It's a video lesson of me. Um, we've been working on that really hard, still finishing it and producing it, finalizing it. But um, and then it's going to be uh, delivered to you once a day for 45 days. It's all the way through marketing, through safety, through documentation, estimating, staff, everything. Uh, and then it gets into, you'll have it into a library forever. It's an e-course that you can go back to and you and your team can watch it. And then we have a community built around it. You can go into a community like these pages here, but it's not on Facebook and talk to other people that are, um, taking it at the same time or already have, or they may already be ahead. So we've got a new community that we're building. You're going to hear more about that. That's another big product. It's called Restoration Nation. We are moving away from Facebook. Facebook is not a great place for a lot of reasons. But number one, it's just, it's not really, it's no longer a great place to have groups because you've got so much distraction and algorithms and you don't see all the posts. We've got some dedicated group, a group that we've built. It's going to look and feel and taste and smell a lot like Facebook. It doesn't quite have all the bells and whistles and it just doesn't need all that, right? So um, Restoration Nation, it's going to be a community around people who are working on some of our products or courses, or you just want to join it. Uh, one other thing, I know Toby's getting ready to pull the curtain on this thing, but we've built a, um, a series of restoration workshops. I think right now we have four. I think I have two or three more that we want to build out around certain particular uh, education points, whether that be onboarding clients, networking, marketing, building SOPs for your business, using something. I think something else is using it besides, um, besides Xactimate. Is that part of it? Yeah. Yeah. Building your own pricing price list without using Xactimate for your mitigation project. So these are workshops that will have about 20 to 22 people in them. It's a five course, five week course uh, spread out every two weeks. It's kind of like a mastermind. Um, one of us will be facilitating and teaching these and then there'll be space in there for Q and a and in additions and then daily, daily homework and stuff like that. So it's really going to be cool priced really affordably trying to get those filled up um they're going to start next month what you got toby mike asked if we're doing anything commercial i asked for clarification i don't know if he's still watching or not i'm, I'm thinking he's meaning courses focused on commercial work you know mike i'm a let's talk offline about that let's see what you're what you're asking and what your mindset is i would love to create a, a, a course on commercial and complex loss I, I don't like to use the term large loss because not all commercial projects are large and not all complex, not all large losses have to be complex. So it's really just, I don't want to say large loss, but getting commercial work all the way from how do we attract getting more of it? How do we manage it? How do we turn that customer into a referral partner and get more projects like it? So that's something I want to do big in, in next year. And that's kind of my wheelhouse. Obviously you just heard this story. I could do that stuff. So it's estimating it contracting it, getting it signed up. So if that's what you're talking about, the answer is yes. Let's put that together. I would love, you know, the hard part is promoting it. I, I can build it, but, um, you know, I'm just not the best at marketing. I just got to get that out there and get more people. And that just takes a lot of energy, but no excuses. It's a, uh, it's a really good course and I'd love to do that. So, um, I think that's all of our products. Um, next year I will have some more traveling going on for 
traveling classes. Um, now I think COVID is lifting up a little bit. I've got some some stuff planned with the uh, Australia friends. We're going to be over in Australia, and they're going to be here. We're going to be doing some co-branding, some uh, some traveling with them. So it's really cool. So a lot of things in the works. We're not sleeping. But um, other than that, I think that's going to do it. We're going to Happy New Year. Everybody be safe and enjoy and watch the ball drop tonight and kiss your loved ones. Thanks a lot. You still here? What are you doing here, man? Get out of here. Happy New Year. <laughs>